This is an ABC podcast. Good morning. Welcome to AM. I'm Sabra Lane coming to you from Nipaluna, Hobart. For many Australians, Boxing Day is when they get in the car and head off on holiday. After back-to-back summers of bushfires, floods and COVID outbreaks, tourism operators are gearing up for their busiest season in years. While international travel's yet to recover from the pandemic, industry leaders say the boom in domestic tourism is now filling the ongoing void. Gavin Coote reports. With Christmas now behind her... Sydney lawyer Anastasia is planning to spend as much time as possible relaxing on the beach. I mean, for me, it feels getting new work and everything. feels like the two years of COVID or two and a half years has just... It's not completely behind us, but it's not the same atmosphere of lockdowns anymore, so that's, that's a good thing. First it was bushfires, then came multiple COVID waves, which led to shuttered borders and travel chaos. In what feels like the first normal summer in three years... Anastasia isn't so anxious to go overseas just yet. She's going to do little road trips along the New South Wales coast. Kiama's number one. Um, Newcastle isn't too bad for beach. Maybe Wollongong. Wollongong has a couple of nice ocean pools there. Retirees Frank, Betty and Joe also plan on keeping things pretty local this summer. Yes, my sister uh, is going to... Well, she's on the way to Germany. She's paying double what she used to pay before which is uh, $6,000, plus she's paying another $600 for insurance. There are beautiful places around Australia. You don't need to go overseas, especially at this time of the year, because it's winter somewhere else, and it's Amakia. We'll have to go to Central Coast, Batemans Bay, to the south, to the north, to but for one week. You don't really need to go a thousand kilometres or a thousand kilometres away from Australia to have a good time. It's, a, it's beautiful here. It doesn't matter where you go south or north. And as tourism hotspots gear up for post-Christmas travellers, some operators are already back at pre-pandemic levels. Craig Wickham runs a tour company on South Australia's Kangaroo Island. The island was devastated by bushfires three years ago and then heavily affected by COVID border closures. As soon as the borders were open, there was an enormous amount of pent-up demand. There were people who delayed honeymoons. Yeah, we've had the busiest spring we've ever had and our forward bookings are very, very solid indeed. Even once this summer passes, Craig Wickham doesn't see demand from domestic travellers tapering off. Aussies have really enjoyed getting out and exploring their backyard and learning more about their country and, and really seeing what it is about Australia that motivates people to, you know, jump on a plane for, you know, 15, 24 hours, depending where they're coming from. We're looking forward to having a a blend of Australian visitors as well as our international guests who have come back really strongly. As for international visitors, industry leaders warn that unless there's more funding to promote Australian destinations, it could take years to return to pre-pandemic numbers. Gavin Coote reporting there. For most of us, this year's Christmas presents have been exchanged, wrapping paper ripped off and thrown away. Family feasts have been devoured with plates scraped clean and the empties piled up. And this morning, many of us will start on the clean-up, sorting rubbish and recycling, including food waste, as Nick Grimm reports. So here I've got um, some, just some cans and some bottles, uh, juice container, egg, egg um, holder. Sydney man Alan Jones is an avid recycler. Just as much plastic cans, bottles, um, cardboard as I possibly um, can find to recycle, I do. It's, it's just... Something small in the grand scheme of things, but 
I get a good feeling out of doing it. Cheers, boys. Cheers, boys. Full bellies and sore heads post-Christmas aren't the only unwanted hangovers from the season of making merry. There's also a mountain of waste to be thrown out, or better still, recycle when that's possible. So we're obviously seeing people staying at home. We're seeing a large amount of gifts being purchased. We're seeing an awful lot of wrapping. Gail Sloan is the CEO of the Waste Management and Resource Recovery Association of Australia. It's that very large, intense consumption that we see on Christmas Day that leads to a lot of material potentially being at curb because people are at home and in certain areas such as um, coastal areas where we see a large influx of holidaymakers. When you've got the Airbnbs and the influxes, it absolutely goes through the roof. A lot more people at their holiday homes. A lot of it recyclable, paper and cardboard and glass, but probably just too much of it still is waste. But a lot of that waste could be getting recycled, in particular those generous helpings of uneaten food at this time of year. 24% of councils around Australia divert household food and garden organics, also known as FOGO waste, away from landfill to be composted and reused. We can do a lot to minimise waste to landfill by thinking of alternatives for that food waste stream. Bill Clark is a professor of waste management at the University of Queensland. He's on a mission to encourage more councils to stop your food scraps from going into the bin or even your backyard compost heap or worm farm. I mean, obviously there's a convenience in doing the composting right in your backyard, but you can also benefit from having centralised composting because the conditions there can be much more controlled, reach higher temperatures and reach a more uniform quality. And that's a no-brainer for someone like Alan Jones, who believes in giving something back to his adopted home. I just firmly believe that we should uh, be more mindful of um, where our waste goes, especially at this time of year. Home recycling enthusiast Alan Jones ending Nick Grimm's reports. Can private markets save Australia's unique animals and ecosystems? The federal government thinks it can, and it's trying to create a nature restoration market that gives businesses an opportunity to invest in nature. But scientists, conservationists, now big investors as well, doubt a voluntary market can do what's required and that the government needs to either force businesses to pay or stump up the cash itself. With more, here's our National Environment reporter, Michael Slezak. Australia's lands, oceans and native species, the stuff we all rely on, are in serious trouble. Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek knows it, and in July she made it clear who she wants to fix it. The scale of this challenge means that governments can't do it alone. We need to work with industry and with philanthropic partners. I want to look at ways of making this investment easier. She says the scheme would operate in a way that is similar to the carbon market, but entirely voluntary, creating something she calls nature restoration credits that can be traded. What we want to do is set up a voluntary nature market so that landholders can be paid to protect and restore nature on the land they own. But why would businesses want to buy these credits? Well, um, because their investors, their shareholders and their customers demand it. 
Dr Megan Evans, an environmental policy researcher at the University of New South Wales, says she's not seen evidence that businesses will stump up the cash voluntarily. They're not really going to do anything seriously until they're absolutely required to. You know, you need government regulation um, and action to, to motivate that. These are all kind of sexy decisions that sound really cool. But uh, at the end of the day, the most effective ways that you could address nature loss is through saying no to developments that massively impact on threatened species. Martin Wilder is at the forefront of the new world of nature investments. He runs a climate investment and advisory firm, and with HSBC, they've set up a $650 million fund to invest in nature. But that money isn't going into nature restoration since it can't generate a profit. I can invest in infrastructure, housing, companies, and you know, they'll grow and we'll make money and I'll get a return. If I go and invest in wildlife today, there's no economic return. I don't get an economic return for investing in, in koalas. He says if the government wants businesses to invest the sort of funds the government is talking about, either the government will need to pay for the nature credits or businesses will need to be forced to buy them. If you want to drive trillions of dollars into nature, billions, millions, whatever you want to do, as the government's been talking about, the government's quote, a Wall Street of capital, you need far greater direct intervention. Former Treasury boss, economist Dr Ken Henry, is working towards putting an economic value on nature restoration. He says once that's standard practice, businesses will need to clean up their act. I would expect that over time that enhanced disclosure is going to lead to pressure for those companies that are having a significant impact on nature. So yes, largely voluntary, uh, and I think it will happen. Economist Dr Ken Henry, ending that report by Michael Slezak. Minority groups in Indonesia fear the country's new criminal code will have a devastating and wide-reaching impact on some of the country's most vulnerable people. Rights groups say women and the gay and lesbian community could become targets under key provisions, including a ban on sex outside marriage. Indonesia correspondent Anne Barker reports. In a high-profile rape case before the pandemic, a young Indonesian woman in Jakarta alleged she'd been raped by four colleagues after a work-related dinner. Police began an investigation, but the case was soon dropped. And four months after the alleged assault, the young woman married one of the suspects. Women's rights groups say it's not so rare for victims of sexual assault in Indonesia to marry their rapist to counter the stigma for their families or under pressure from the perpetrator. And India Vivi heads the organisation Jakarta Feminist. A lot of parents think that this is actually shameful for having their daughters raped and that's why they can force their uh, children to marry their rapists. The organisation argues that Indonesia's controversial new criminal code passed by the parliament this month will only worsen the problem, especially in cases where a victim can't prove the rape or the perpetrator argues it was consensual. If at some point they are being raped and then the defence argues that it is a consensual sex, it can actually lead to criminalisation. Indonesia's existing penal code punishes adultery committed by married couples, but the 
the new laws due to come into force in three years will criminalise sex outside marriage by anyone. Many in the LGBT community fear the same provision will be used against them, given that gay marriage is not allowed or recognised in Indonesia. The new laws also contain separate but equally controversial provisions that will recognise and legitimise local traditional laws or customs in regions across the country and could include anything from Sharia laws in devoutly Muslim provinces to customs such as female circumcision. Gun Wibisono, who lives with his gay Dutch partner, fears these traditional laws will be used to target the LGBT community. The region can have uh, freedom to create a new law to persecute anyone who against our culture or who against our norms. But some of the law's most controversial provisions are new restrictions on free speech, jail terms for insulting the president or government, expanded laws on blasphemy and a ban on unauthorised protests. Usman Hamid represents Amnesty International in Indonesia. This reminds us about uh, a time when Suharto was in power for more than 30 years where we can't have even a peaceful demonstration without obtaining a permit. The criminal code's ratification comes just as Indonesia shifts into campaign mode for an election due just over a year away. Though they won't take effect for three years, and it seems inevitable they'll be challenged in that time at the Constitutional Court, which has struck down laws before. Though legal experts say this time that may not succeed because the court itself has been weakened after a judge was recently sacked for failing to support the parliament. Indonesia correspondent Anne Barker. King Charles III has delivered his first Christmas message as monarch, paying tribute to his mother. The Christmas address is a British royal family tradition dating back 90 years. The king spoke about anxiety and hardship faced by people around the world in the speech recorded at Windsor Castle. Alexandra Humphreys reports. King Charles spoke from St George's Chapel in Windsor Castle, close to where his parents were laid to rest. He took the opportunity to pay tribute to Queen Elizabeth II. In the much-loved carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, we sing of how in thy dark street shineth the everlasting light. My mother's belief in the power of that light was an essential part of her faith in God but also her faith in people. And it is one which I share with my whole heart. It is a belief in the extraordinary ability of each person to touch with goodness and compassion the lives of others and to shine a light in the world around them. In remembering his mother, the 74-year-old monarch spoke of loss. Christmas is a particularly poignant time for all of us who have lost loved ones. We feel their absence at every familiar turn of the season and remember them in each cherished tradition. And he reflected on the cost of living struggles faced by so many. And at this time of great anxiety and hardship, be it for those around the world facing conflict, famine or natural disaster, or for those at home finding ways to pay their bills and keep their families fed and warm. We see it in the humanity of people throughout our nations and the Commonwealth who so readily respond to the plight of others. King Charles made mention of Prince William and Princess Catherine's recent visit to Wales and the community spirit they saw there and his own recent visit to Bethlehem, which moved him greatly. 
He made no mention of son Harry or his wife Megan. The power of lights overcoming darkness is celebrated across the boundaries of faith and belief. So whatever faith you have or whether you have none, it is in this life-giving light and with the true humility that lies in our service to others that I believe we can find hope for the future. The new monarch ended his address with a wish for peace, happiness and everlasting light. Alexandra Humphreys. It wouldn't be Boxing Day in Australia without the Sydney to Hobart yacht race. The starting cannon will fire this afternoon. This year, sailors in the two-handed division will be allowed to compete for the overall prize in the Blue Water Classic. They were declared ineligible last year due, due to handicap concerns. But no matter when the fleet arrives in Hobart, nor the weather, Biddy Badenak will be there. The 79-year-old Salty was the race director and finish coordinator at the Hobart end of the famous race for 23 years, including the 1998 event, which claimed six lives and other 55 yachties had to be rescued. I caught up with Biddy recently at the Royal Tasmanian Yacht Club. The 98 race uh, shook things up a bit because the coronial inquiry made the safety conditions more stringent than they were. And all for, I must say, all for the good. Safety's paramount. As race coordinator, I went to briefings in Sydney and they always had somebody from Australian Maritime Safety Authority there talking about the updated regulations and if you got into strife, you know, where the helicopter would be coming from to pluck you out of the water and all that sort of stuff. It was very informative and and, and very good. You've never actually done one of these races yourself? No, I must admit I haven't done a race but the very simple reason is that ocean racing has never appealed to me because I get too seasick. That's, that's, I love sailing. I love sailing on the River Dermot. I've sailed in, sailed in uh, lightweight sharpies, dragons and etc. and over the years and, you know, I think yacht racing's going out in the, the, the river in the afternoon having a hard race around the boys and coming into the yacht club afterwards for a beer. To me, it's a, a lot of fun and that's what I've enjoyed but I've always enjoyed being involved with yachting administration so that's how I became involved with with the Sydney Hobart with the Sydney Hobart race. And what makes the Sydney Hobart so special? One of the mysteries of the race is the weather patterns you don't know what you're going to get and uh, you can leave Sydney with the under spinnaker and then get down the coast and you get a southerly that comes in and you're bashing bashing your way all to Hobart and uh, that's you know the I think ever since Rani won the first race, it, it's it's had that mystique about it. And now that you're not officially part of the, the, the race management itself, you still follow it intently. Why do you get up in the early hours to see those boats come in? Uh, well, I think it's a matter of habit now. It's, it's in the system. And this year they're allowing two sailors on boats to, to compete. That, that's pretty special, isn't it? And, yeah. and that, that's particularly challenging just for two people on board a little boat. Oh, very much so, but two-handed sailing's become very popular and it's just a, an extension of the race, basically. And this year, the uh, two-handed boats are eligible for overall winner uh, prize if they, if they compete the yacht, so that it would be a great achievement if one of them could. But it's a tough gig doing 600-odd miles to Hobart two-handed. It's a real challenge. Tell us what goes through your head when you're on a good tank. Oh, you, 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 if you one of elation, if you, if you, particularly if you tack in front of a, another yacht that's 
pretty close, and that's that, that, that's what it's that's what it's all about. You know, getting to the finishing line first. That's Betty Badenak, former Finnish coordinator for the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race. That's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm Sabra Lane. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.